Tony's, Tony's testimony is incredible. His book he just wrote is incredible. Um, thanks to Jackie Kenner also. She uh, proofread it and told him, you know, hey, you can't do that. <laughs> uh, but no, it's, it's a powerful testimony, and his testimony is unique in the, in the sense that um, it's been verified in a number of ways. Uh, there's evidence to support a lot of his claims, and the Farsight Institute re recently remote viewed a lot of aspects of your testimony, and it all checked out. And uh, it's been, uh, the people who've tried to debunk it can't, uh, and it's real, and uh, we know this stuff's real, but uh, your testimony is incredible, and it's moved a lot of people, and your book's amazing. Thank you for everything you're doing, and can't wait to hear what you're uh, bringing tonight. Thanks. Thanks. Kit, can you hear me? Is that, is that good? How about in the back? I sat in the back for the last two uh, presentations, and it was a little tricky to catch everything, so make sure if you guys can't hear me back there, just give me a wave, and I'll start screaming. So... Uh, Tyler, I just want to say, Tyler and Aaron, number one, um, Journey to the Truth has such a huge curb appeal. It has a great audience, a good following. You guys really, you guys really are a, um, a major player in disclosing this information. So, <laughs> throwing a con I've been to, I've done a few of these conferences. Maybe uh, coming up on a dozen uh, live appearances. And uh, I know enough to, to know that it's not an easy thing. And Tyler, you made it look easy, man. I mean, you really knocked it out of the park. So thank you. Give a hand for Tyler. And Aaron, I don't want to leave Aaron out of anything. I know you guys are partners. You guys are bros. So, uh, and everybody else that helped you. This conference is really running like a, a, a clock. And so it's a, a pleasure to be here. It's a big crowd. Thank you for coming out, everybody. I'm blown away. Um, really by this crowd. I knew that because this conference was solely uh, geared around secret space program disclosure that the, the audience was really going to be up to speed. Other conferences are kind of watered down. There's UFO guys, secret space program guys, spiritual healing and crystals and you know they, they have a bunch of different subject matter uh, all in one conference so the crowd really doesn't gel and um, I'm gonna get the hard part out of the way I think first is um, I never expected I thought when I I thought when I told my account of what happened to me to researchers number one I was just trying to get some therapy get it off my chest I didn't want to die with it I didn't want to be on my deathbed with this information so I talked to researchers I needed help and then it went to an interview and then another interview and a show and then to Gaia and then on and on and on to the book. And here I am, it's six years later. And I'm, I never, I thought I was gonna tell my story and that a hundred more people like me were gonna tell their story behind me and I was just gonna go home. And that hasn't happened. And in fact, a lot of other people have stepped forward and been abused and stepped away. Um, guys I knew, I, I, you know what I mean? I don't even know if I should mention their names, like guys like Jason, Michael Gerloff. These are people that, you know, were um, they had their personal lives greatly threatened by telling their story, and so they had to step away. And it's like, in a, many ways, I'm the last man standing out of that group of people that came forward six years ago, and it's just it's a shame. Um, but I want to say this: that I never, ex also never expected 
the reception that you guys have gave me. Um, you guys, from one end of this building to the other, it's been, people have been very loving to me. And, you know, I, I, this is why I'm getting the hard part out first. I uh, didn't expect that, and I didn't tell my story so that I could pull on your heartstrings and make you feel sorry for me. I told my story to be a rat on those bastards and put a, it in the history. But it's, it's, been one, it's been one hug after another, and you guys have shown me so much love. I just want to take a minute before I get into this to say I love you too, and thank you so much. Uh, it feels like when you put your desktop for your computer up on a screen that you guys are all looking at my sock drawer. So, uh, no, I'll do no incognito browsing, I promise. Um, I originally, like I have a slideshow that goes through everything basically in the book from, from the beginning to the end. It's, the, it's my story. It's not, it's not I didn't write it as a, as a f fictional account. It's not a movie. It's what happened to me and in the order that I present it. And I just don't feel that I want to do that tonight. Um, firstly, how many people have read the book? So quite a bit. So really, so how many people have seen me in interviews live? So, right, interviews are easy. It's really easy to do an interview, um, to sit down and have, especially when you have a talented interviewer. And even some that are not talented when they interview you. I know I have my own show, and Jackie tells me all the time I'm a shitty interviewer. But uh, but we get it done, you know. Like uh, we get it done, and uh, we have some uh, great content. You get some good info in there, so it's easy to do interviews. It's also easy for them to get rid of the interview, as we all know. There's been a lot of canceling of a lot of really good things, uh, information-wise, and other things that just come up missing nowadays. Big tech has their way. And uh, we thought that we were protected by our amendments, and we're not. So having a paperback um, cover in your, in your library at home is a really good insurance policy for this information because beyond me, beyond anything that happens, uh, this needs to go into the future so that, they can, so that we can keep their lies in check. Because we're gonna, you know that when there's a disclosure, we're going to get a pack of lies. They're going to have to sanitize it and water it down. There's no way they're going to tell you what I went through or what other people went through in that way. There's just no way they're going to disclose it like that, and this needs to go into the future. So a paperback book was a big deal. And um, I can jump us right in the deep end then. So you guys all know my story. I mean, literally everybody raised their hand So when you said on the interviews. During the return, they knew I was going to remember. So they had the technology, everybody's familiar, you know, if, you're, if you study this stuff, you're familiar with it. They have uh, chronovisors that show probable futures, probable outcomes to, per to present things. And they knew that the probability of me retaining the memories was very high. And so much so that they took me to a corner office on a building on the moon. I looked out, I looked out the window onto the surface of the moon and he plugged me into a computer and I got another round of very painful trauma-based mind control, but this time they put me, they connected me to a machine that showed me my probable future. So I got to relive it, and what they did was, probably through some sort of implant towards the end of my days, recorded that data right up to the moment of death, and then they would change something 
and do it again. And over and over and over again, I saw my death. I lived many deaths, and I saw uh, the dream before death. And that's how I know every single timeline that they looked at that they were pleased with, the book did not get done. Every single timeline that pissed them off, the book was done. And I would sit there, and I... I, I would sit there in the last minutes of my death, and I think about my daughters. I try to say my daughters' names to be the last words that I speak. Is uh, you know Madison Mackenzie. I say it over and over again. Elise Madison Mackenzie. And during that time, when I looked back on my life, I I was saying to myself, at least the book was done. And then they wake up out of it, and I'd be back in that office, and he go, No, we can't have that one. Let's do it again. And they would run it again. And every time that they were close enough, the one they, they realized they never hit their threshold. It was something like 35% probability that I remember. They wanted a threshold. They never got it. And they were going to perform surgery. And they lost my paperwork. And I got back. And here we are. Um, so it's like complicated to even tell that story, right? Like, I, I hope I didn't lose you guys. <laughs> I haven't even started uh, really showing anything. The other thing, uh, I guess, that is also from the deep end is uh, I was hoping he'd be here. I asked him to come in here, but I know it's not um, entirely realistic. But did you guys see the macaw earlier, the scarlet-winged macaw? And I walked around with it. So does anybody know? Is the macaw in here? He's right there. Yeah, Jesus. Uh, So, I mean, this was the original cover for the book. And, uh, you know, and it, right, and I'll whip this out. I did it in Australia, so there's my tattoo about it. So, I hope, it's, I hope it made the cut, Jackie. I mean, you're right here. My editor's right here. Did it get cut out of the book, the whole bird thing? I didn't read it, so people read the book. You might be... <laughs> You, you read the book, you might know what I'm talking about, but I'm going to explain it. Because um, it was, it, when I saw the macaw, I really, um, you know, part of my language, but it really fucked me up uh, because of why it's chosen the symbol, why I've chosen the symbolism, why I've tattooed it on my body. When I was in Peru, I was a very broken child. I was a very depressed and mentally broken child. I had just survived a mind fracturing CIA program and became weaponized and I was I was broken and kids who were playing soccer <clears throat> actually I'll throw a slide up hang on So uh, this place, the town square, on our, on our second flight to Santa Marta, Colombia with, with a shipment of cocaine, they used the money to build that square in 1983. So I, right? so I don't have the paperwork behind that, but I did do an interview in Brazil that got translated to Portuguese, and people saw it that did live in that town in 83, and they got a hold of me and confirmed it. So that was another supporting thing. It's great. Like, I always wish for things like that to pop up and prove me wrong so I can shut up and go home and get back with my life. My life's good. Um, but it just supported my, my testimony. 
I remember standing in the corner and watching boys when the bulldozers cleared that place. They, they were built, there was a building there or whatever. The bulldozers had grubbed the land and it was just dirt. And a bunch of kids ran out and started playing soccer in it. And I asked if I could go play with them. And we had just done the flight, so I was still sick from it. I got sick whenever they drugged me. And he said, no, you can't go out there. Don't go near the kids. You're not allowed to talk to them. And I cried. I started crying. And um, that whole time I was, you know, like I said, very broken. And again, I'm, I'm not, this isn't a pity party, right? I'm not trying to pull on your heartstrings here. I just want you to understand what, what led to this. And um, later on, Manuel got in a fight with a, or a disagreement with a guy. And I said, why don't you just beat him up? He's, he's skinny just beat him up and he said I can't he's got a blessed life that guy's lucky about everything his parents treated him grow his life is blessed they believed it so this is another thing I'd like to check out sometime I'd really I'd love to go there and I said am I blessed or cursed then if I if you're if he's got a blessed life does that mean I'm cursed because I'm so sad and he said I don't know you're gonna have to decide for yourself and we talked about it for months and the birds would come through town and we would see parrots land, and I would talk about how beautiful. And he would always say the scarlet-winged macaw is the most beautiful bird in South America. He said, they're all pretty, but the, the scarlet-winged scarlet macaw is the best. And when it was time for me to go, I knew within a couple of weeks that I was leaving, and I had still never seen one. And I said, Am I, you think I'm going to see one, Manuel? And he said, uh, maybe. I said, well, if I do see one, it means I have a blessed life. Maybe my life is blessed. And if I don't see it, I'll know that I'm cursed. And two days before I left, which was off, they don't have a migration season, but they kind of do in that town. Two days before I left, a flock of four of them landed right in front of me, and I saw them, and I used that in the future to tell myself that my life wasn't cursed. To the other things that I went through afterwards, I told myself, and I saw them a call. I saw that. So that I have a blessed life. It's what I did to... That's why now, after I got my memories back and I did everything, I got it as a tattoo and to remind myself that that's my, it's a lifetime thing. And to remind myself when I'm, when I'm feeling whatever, poor, poor me, when I feel sorry for myself that, you know, I have to remind myself that my life was blessed. And while we were sitting here, I looked up and there's a fucking scarlet winged macaw <laughs> in the room. So... For you guys, it's just a cool bird that says hello. For me, it's like a message from God. So that's, that's how I took that. Um, that's how I took that to, to today. And I'm still, I tell you what, it choked me up. They were filming me, and it was like weird. I was like getting misty about it. So, and I kind of still am. So that was a big deal. It's mentioned in the book. I'd invite you guys to read it. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask is, anybody here ever worked for, at one point, the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency? Anybody retired from the CIA? Anybody? You can say it. You can, you can raise your hand. The reason I ask is the last few... Um, you know, I don't want to point fingers, and I don't want to be uh, negative. The last thing I do is 
the very last thing I ever want to do with anybody else's testimony, no matter how far-fetched I think it is, even from what I saw in space during my time with aliens, <laughs> the last thing I want to do is be critical because it's a very important thing for people to feel welcome to speak about this. It's part of the remembering process. Uh, I'll get into some memory, uh, memory mechanics of remembering deleted memories uh, towards the end of the talk. But the last thing I would ever do is criticize. However, there are people in our community that are ex-CIA people. And they openly admit it and they come on stage and they're the ones being critical of us. And we're starting to get a real pushback on YouTube and in media from these people. We're starting to get a... a uh, what's the word? A dissipation. Or, you know... We're starting to get the information kind of dissipated um, from the people that originally came out, which means we're doing something right. And it's important. That means it's, it's not, if this was all BS, they would leave us alone. We wouldn't get shadow banned. We wouldn't get banned off YouTube. They have flat earth all over YouTube. They're, they're not shadow banned, right? So if they wouldn't do that if we weren't right about something. If this wasn't information they didn't want us to have, they wouldn't bother spending the money to send agents out to come to our, to our conferences and openly uh, oppose us on, in the panels. And I've had it happen a few times already. Uh, so I wanted to get, just because of the bird, uh, <laughs> I went back to my room and I started adding Peru slides. You know what I mean? Like, what are the odds of seeing a, a macaw here? So. In, in interviews, no, everybody wants to hear about uh, Mars, uh, lasers, how the ship worked, free energy. And after the book came out, people secretly want to know everything about Marie in the book, <laughs> which is weird. But um, I'll cover some Peru because we have a macaw here. And I, it was important. This is evidence. And evidence for us is a scarce, hard, precious thing. Um, that, was the, that was the route we flew to Santa Marta, Colombia. There's a small... Um, airport there, and we would land. It was, it's right on the ocean, exactly how I remember it and how I described it before I ever found it on Google. And about 10-hour flight, we would get up over the state of Acre, and they'd put me in, um, give me an IV in my arm and give me a drug, and I'd go under. I really don't even know what else is on this. This is an artist drawing. Mark Hallisey, a good friend of mine, drew this. Um, and I've done this in other presentations, but this is basically what it was. That was about that much cocaine that they loaded on board. And they would put me on the cot on the inside of a C-46 commando airplane. The first time I went, I, uh, he put me under. He put an IV in me. I traced it down. I looked at a lot of research that they did in the 80s with the CIA with um, um, psychic ability, induced psychic uh, abilities, and there's a version of, they were having a ketamine, they were using ketamine in Vietnam to do field operations on soldiers, and what they found was that a lot, a, a pretty high percentage of soldiers were having prophetic um, visions while they were under. So when they were waking up or while they were under getting operated on and had anesthesia in the field from a ketamine version, they were telling what was going to happen the next day at the battle accurately. And so the CIA researched that, and then they said nothing happened, and they, they canceled it. But that's pretty much what they were giving me as best I could tell. The first time I went, uh, he put me under, and nothing happened. He said I was um, 
you know, it was all gibberish, and he said they were going to feed me the piranhas. Everybody knows that. I've said that in a lot of interviews. And then they sent a silver mesh blanket. He, they got a hold of the people that had sent me down there, that they were paying for me to be there. And they sent a silver blanket to block the EMF signals from the airplane's instruments. And they wrapped me up in it on the next flight. And the guy, Manuel, the guy who was basically the only person that spoke English in that town, that was my handler, for lack of a better word, my, my chaperone, um, didn't believe in any of it. He didn't think, he thought that I was going to go under and wake up and, and they were going to get rid of me on this flight. But when I, when I came to, he was white as a ghost and he couldn't believe the things I was saying. He said, I said I spoke Spanish, I spoke fluent Spanish. I, uh, he had spoken to his grandmother, his dead grandmother. Uh, many people, he said many different voices came through. And uh, that's what was happening. So I did that monthly for a couple years. That's the inside. So then, lo and behold, after the memories, I went, well, let me look online and see what the inside of a C-46 commando airplane looks like. And there's, there's a similarity from my artist. So, so that's the difference. Uh, I found this is normal. Uh, in, in my very first uh, research with Dr. Sala, I told him I remembered we rode around in big trucks in, in the town. That they, like a, they didn't have a taxi. They used big farm trucks. And this is the, the modern version. Back then, they had old trucks like in MASH that we would ride around in. So there's a C-46 Commando. And that's about where it is, the river town. So it's really not a reality for me to go back there. I was saving going to Inyokern for, for evidence, for gathering evidence to support me. And Brad Olson went there, and we did a live fate, like a Facebook FaceTime. And I was calling out things as he was walking up, because I've never been there in my life. But I was calling out things, and it was exactly um, like he was seeing. And he was kind of, he was, um, he was impressed, he said. So that was nice that Brad, on his way home from Vegas, stopped in an intern. But it's not realistic that I go to Porto Tawantinsuyo ever. Um, number one, the cocaine business is still there. That mountain ridge, uh, so my testimony, I came out before ever researching any of this. But this mountain ridge is like the richest, um, richest crop of co the coca plant that produces cocaine in the world. <clears throat> so that was, I, I kind of called that out for what I went through and then found that out after the fact. Um, there's the, the town. So I'm, I'm showing these pictures now because if you look at the river where it's... Um, more clear water on the t on the top and then muddy water on the bottom. Uh, he told me about his grandparents that th this this town originally was a fishing village. That that was the economy. They would set up and fish and then ship the fish downriver to Porto Maldonado, and that was the economy. And um, his parents and grandparents like had done it for a hundred years. That that was the economy. And when the gold mine started, they started gold mining south of there. That's where the mud came from from the other river. And uh, he said they cried. His mom and everybody, they, the whole village wept about it. They were all sad. There was nothing they could do. They tried, they tried to stop the gold mining. There's nothing they could do. The reason I uh, bring this up is because you look at these pictures now. This was, I think this picture I got back in 2018. Um, I might have to find this, you guys. I'm sorry. Like I said, after... I saw um, Johan and, and Jody, and then I watched Mark, and I thought, man, on my slide, it's going to work. I'm just going to point and click these and, and talk as I go. So um, 
Bear with me, please. So there's what it looks like now. The, gold, the illegal gold mining has proliferated just in the last two years, and uh, that's all gold mine now. So that's completely poisoned. They use the chemical stripping, and it's completely illegal, which is why I can't travel there. Uh, I've heard, I had a friend of mine that's from, I forget, small town on the coast of Peru, and I got a hold of him. I said, let's go, man. And he didn't know why. He didn't know my testimony at all. I just told he was from Peru. He's my friend from Peru. So I said, let's go. He said, where do you want to go? And I told him to that town, and he said, you can't go there. He said, I can't even go there. The illegal gold mining, they pretty much, you have to have a reason, or they're going to, they, you have, a, it's like the Wild West, you can get killed. So, um, you know, the reason, I would have never touched on this if it wasn't for that bird in the room. And uh, that's kind of where we're at with, with, the, with that. That's Porto Tawantinsuyong. So it's well known for illegal gold mining, the cocaine trade, and um, human trafficking. So that's one of their strongholds. Uh, Manuel, back then in 1983, when I asked him who owned me, used the words the cabal. So that was back then, yeah. There's the Madre de Dios, so it still has clear water coming in from the top, which was, um, sorry, that's later. Um, sorry, sorry guys. I uh, wanted to talk to you guys. Uh, sorry, I'm not doing this. Sorry guys, uh, it's been a while. Jack, you're still on there. Um, is that doing right? Okay. Um, so this is the original slideshow, and I'll just go through it. And I, I, I would invite you guys, to, if you see anything, to really hit me up. I want to leave some time. It's only been a half hour, so I'll go a little ways. But I really want to leave a lot of time for the Q&A. Um, because you guys are already versed in this stuff. You, the bar is set pretty high. I think that... I, I think that the burden is on you for quality presentation of questions rather than me. <laughs> because I, you know, you've already seen me. Uh, and, but anyhow, uh, Jackie Kenner, who was in the first slide, Jackie Pierce, married Neil Kenner. Uh, awesome friends of mine. I'm very, very um, blessed to have met them. Jackie set up the website for me. She shouldered the Patreon channel, which is still going and then started, went off to start her family, so she's doing her thing, and kicked my ass into getting the book done, because I would have still been writing it. Um, it was really her, she said, one day she said, that's a cool story, finish the book. And I said, but wait, 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 but she said, cool story, Tony, finish the book. And then when I got to the end of it, where I was barnstorming the end of it, she said, I'm not gonna talk to you until you're done with the book. We're not friends anymore until the book is finished, so. It was, uh, it was the last little bit, a nudge of motivation I need. And then she really worked, um, really, I don't know how much, but day and night. I mean, you put a lot of hours in in the last three weeks, I want to say, of editing the book. She did the final edit, and I think cut out a few things that said, it makes you sound like a pussy. Uh, so, and again, sorry about my language. Um, 
but I'm going to try to be as transparent as I can with you guys. Uh, I've got her in the room, that's why I'm doing this. Not always going to be so lucky, so. Um, but she uh, really, really uh, had the abilities to do the things that I couldn't with getting my information out there, so it's really on the next level of it. The book is the next level. I look around, I don't know, how, who else is a speaker at this event? Raise your hand. Anybody in the room, any speakers in the room? Jermaine? Daryl? Few people. So I would tell anybody, and I'll tell all of you, you all have a story. Every single one of you has a book that everybody wants to read, really, in you. All of you do. You wouldn't be sitting here if you didn't. And putting it in words makes it reality in a different way, on, on another level than in your mind and in your heart. And it's very important to write books. Uh, I, I wasn't motivated to write the book. I wasn't really gung-ho for it. I was one of those things, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. But after it's done, and where we're at with it now, it's really done, it's really dispelled the demons of what happened to me. So I would say everybody has the same thing inside them. You have the same kind of demons in you, you have your same story, we all have our struggles, and if you write about it and other people can relate to it, it's, it's, a, it's the way you get over it. So I would tell everybody, especially the speakers with this information, to get out there and start writing. It's a lot of work, it's not easy, but it's worth it. I'm gonna just kind of blow through these. This is my, this is the slide. This is the story. So, for you guys that didn't read it, I'll explain it. Um, there's my house. I grew up there. Uh, that's where I was taken from. Uh, we had a long driveway. It was originally a farm, and we ended up on you know with some land out on an old hundred-year-old house. Uh, there's the school I was uh, grew up in, and um, I don't know, there's a little bit of space in between these, I wish there was, but, and there's the guy that popped into my room one night and introduced himself and paralyzed me and, and had these guys come in the door and my uh, bedroom and carry me off to a laboratory and do tests on me and tell me they wanted to borrow my consciousness for 20 years and because they needed my help because they were great guys. That really was the, that was really the sales pitch that they needed my help, like I was, I was special. You're special. You're you're chosen for this. You're you're lucky. He told me that over and over. You're gonna get to live an extra twenty years more than everybody else, so you're lucky that we have you here for this, which was pretty much turned out to be bullshit. That's uh how I experienced so I, I always like I love this slide and because I think it's gonna be evidence at some point in the future because I didn't experience the twenty years and then my life, or my life, and then the 20 years. Like, I didn't blur between the two. I literally lived till 10, and then did the 20-year program. Like, that happened first. And when I got back to 10, when they were finished with me and did whatever they did, time traveled, age regression, I don't, I don't understand the process, to be honest. When they put me back, I felt like I had been gone for 20 years. It wasn't a blurry thing. When I, when I got back to my bedroom Friday morning, the, I was taken on a Thursday night, and Friday morning when I woke up, I didn't recognize the pile of toys. It had been 20 years since I had Stretch Armstrong. You know, and I picked it up, it was broken, and I went, wow, I, wow. And I was, I was totally lost in my own home. It, it was like leaving my childhood for 20 years and returning to it. 
20, after 20 years had passed. Like that was the sensation. So at some point, that's going to come in handy to somebody else that studies this information. Um, you know, because I, I, like I said, I don't know how it all worked out. Here's the annual current. Here's where um, Brad Olson went for me, um, the annual current air base. These buildings here. Brad walked up. Uh, so I, I'll show you. Sorry if you couldn't hear me in the back. And he had me on, on uh, Facebook on a video call. And I said, I remember the bridge that there was a big drop and then there was uh, grapefruit-sized round rocks that where the river had And he got to the bridge and he said, nope. He said, it's only three feet. So I was a kid and everything is bigger in my mind. Like even he showed me the doors of the building. I thought they were 30 feet tall. They were like 14 feet tall. You know, like how you think that things are bigger in your childhood. But he looked over the bridge, he said, no, I don't see any rocks there, there's no rocks there. And he kept walking, and I thought, okay. And he walked another 30 feet up, and sure enough, there were round rocks that were there. He said, oh, there they are, exactly how I said. So he uh, kind of perked up. Uh, but he just went to the gate there, and he went over and took pictures of the, the, these buildings. And um, showed me the mountains one last time over where I always thought, I always dreamt that escape uh, when they were putting us through that test that we had when the, before they hooked us up into the chairs in the morning and started the electroshock uh, we would always look towards the west at a mountain range and I would always imagine I could hop the fence and get to those mountains and be safe and escape um, so when he showed them to me it was it was kind of a moment you know like I still kind of that's still on my bucket list I want to drive back here and I want to drive to those mountains and just so that I can complete that for that little kid um, but I always point this out, this is a really great thing of evidence, those three buildings is where it was. Back then they were portables, they were, demol they were condemned after and replaced, and those are, those are buildings that Brad showed me, they're not portables anymore. But they're still classified as a California special district, where it turns out it's perfectly legal to torture little kids in, in California in those buildings only because the local law enforcement doesn't have jurisdiction in a special district. Uh, we found it, uh, a friend with a researcher who went online, he went on the database that has all of the tax records of every structure in the United States because they have to have a tax assessment and those buildings don't exist on that website. So you're looking at something that doesn't exist right now. And that's exactly one of the very first memories I had was of being, being waking up there right after the abduction experience. Like, that's where my 20 years began. I did a quick trip to the moon from there. Uh, this is from uh, Niera Isley. Uh, and, I, you know, I'll tell you guys something on the side. Um, Elena Danan introduced me. We were on a post. I think, Jermaine, you were on the post, too, on Facebook. They posted something, and Elena said, Tony, what do you think? Is this real? And she said, what about you, Niera? And I said, near Isley, and, and then there was a back and forth, and I thought, I'm not, and I, I wrote Elena, and I said, I'm not seeing anything from near Isley. I'm not seeing any posts from her. And uh, she got a hold of her and said, did you, can you see Tony posting? And she said, no. So I said, did she block me? You know? But I had wrote her probably four years ago when, about this slide. When I added this slide to my presentation, I said, did you... And sure enough, I was on her blocked list. She never blocked anybody. 
somebody blocked her for me. You know, somebody blocked me for her. She was, she was unaware, but I was, I was blocked off her Facebook. So, uh, this is Seattle. I'll skip through that. Uh, you guys can, you guys, Seattle was like, uh, whatever, literally pain in the ass. It's okay. Another thing that I don't share, and the kind of cat's out of the bag on a lot of the things about Seattle. I went there. These are this is a picture I t personally took in 2016, when I went to the house. And uh, I think I was forget who I was talking to here about it a little while ago. And I know I don't have to. Yeah, over here. I know I don't have to give you guys a bunch of proof, right? But it's nice to hear things like this that check out because there are so many. There's so little of it. Uh, when I was a little kid, we were going to northern Michigan, and my mom, who I hide my testimony from, um, because I don't want her to know what happened to her 10-year-old boy. I really, it breaks my heart to think, because I know my mom, and I know she'll blame herself somehow. And so I really hide it, and I know she's gotten a copy of the book. My sister bought her a copy of the book. Um, but I've always, she's the one person that I always hide all my posts and all my interviews and everything I can. I don't want my mom to see. The rest of my family, I, you know, I'm open about it. When I was a child, uh, maybe 11 years old, we took a trip to northern Michigan to the Mackinac Island, and we were going to ride the ferry to Mackinac Island. And I said, while I was half asleep in the back seat, I want to ride the Fauntleroy Ferry, Mom. And I said it over and over again. And she said, what are you talking about? And I mean, this is in... 84, you know, in my real life, not, not the top timeline, but the real one after I had been put back. I said, can I, do, can I ride the Fauntleroy Ferry? And, and she said, I don't know, I'll try to find it. She never found it. I posted this picture on Facebook in 2016, and she messaged me and said, I'm so glad you got to finally ride your ferry. <laughs> little did she know, little did she know that only the older kids in Seattle in the house got to ride the Fauntleroy Ferry because it went straight to town, to Seattle. It went from the island I was on to downtown Seattle, and they would always brag about the giant buildings and what a great ferry ride it was. And I only ever rode the South Worth Ferry because the Fauntleroy Ferry wanted ID from the kids. So only the older ones that had fake ID rode it. The, uh, you know, when you boarded it to come back to the island, they checked everybody's ID. The Southworth Ferry didn't. At least that's how I remember it. So may or may not check out. But that was something that happened back then, and my mom's a witness, kind of, kind of a de facto witness on that. That's another one of those things that supports it. When I was there in 2016, I went back to this beach. That fence wasn't there, but I remember going there in the 80s, and uh, we went to the little lighthouse. Uh, God, what did I name her in the book? I changed all the names in the book. I forget what I named her. Huh? Peggy. I named her Peggy in the book. She was basically his wife and, and took care of us kids. She was mad at him one day because she didn't have any money for gas. He, he budgeted her gas literally by the trip. And so she took us here, me and two other of the boys from the house. And we went out, we went out on the beach and we started throwing rocks at each other on this end. And when you walk up around this other side, the rocks get bigger, more like golf ball size, and we start to hurt each other. And when I went there in 2016, I was on the phone with Dr. Sala, and I said, this is the beach. I know that the rocks up around the corner are bigger. And I walked up, and sure enough, I was like blown away that the memories were still were that accurate. You know, like that what I was experiencing was 
surreal. I mean, it was something. I didn't want my memories to be right. I didn't want it. I wanted to be wrong every time. I went to the house. I mean, there's, there's a ton more pictures that I won't share publicly because, you know, I could ruffle the wrong feathers. But I wanted that trip to prove me wrong so that I, just because everything is so terrible, uh, you know, from what I did. And I told Dr. Sala in that same phone call, I said, well, if the memories are this accurate of my time on Earth, I must trust that the memories in space that what I'm, are accurate as well. Because they weren't just close, they were freakishly accurate. I went back to space, I met this guy, I went to Mars. <laughs> went to Mars, I got chased by some bugs and hit a stim pack and I could make the jump from, from dune to dune. I got really strong for about three minutes. Met this guy, they cut my arm off, they cut my foot off. They canceled the program. I only say this because you guys already know all this stuff. <laughs> they canceled the program. They sent me to a city underground on Mars. Uh, a arrogant, tall alien retrained me, gave me aptitude tests, and I ended up as skilled labor and uh, ship maintenance. And then they sold me to these guys. This is a colony. This is the Ceres astero er, dwarf planet near the asteroid belt. Here's the orbit of it. <clears throat> And uh, inside of it, there's about a quarter million people living in giant caverns where they built European-style cities. Um, and they were people that are post, I guess, pre-World War II Germans, Deutsch people. They didn't really call themselves Germans. They called themselves the Deutsch. And they built replica European cities as in giant caverns that they had found abandoned by some other species. So the caverns were natural, but these big... Um, these had smooth walls, and they were, they're pretty big. Those um, trapezoid shapes connected the caverns, and they were already built when the Germans got there, the Deutsch got there. And so they just began to move in and build, build uh, infrastructure. There's trains that connect a lot of these caverns, and they're huge. And they had um, kind of an advanced lighting system that they used that would bounce off the wall so you didn't see the bright spotlight. It kind of had an even tone. And a lot of the smaller caverns, they would paint um, clouds and, and blue skies. Uh, it didn't fool anybody. We knew we were in the dark. They had uh, artificial gravity everywhere. So um, a lot of other experiencers, I would, love to, I, I would love and invite you guys to talk more about the gravity plating because that's basically the, one of the cornerstone of the entire space program, the secret space program. The gravity manipulation technology is one of those things like they, it's like, um, you know, electricity. They, you know, once you get some of it, you're going to get everything else that comes with it. You know, once you learn how to harness electricity, you can make the, the oven and the refrigerator and the lights and, the, you know, everything on and on and on and the computer and the, the internet. So once you learn electricity, you can do all those things. The gravity ma manipulation that's being held from us is the same way. Once, they, once you can create artificial gravity, you can make an anti-grav craft, you can travel time and space, you can do a lot of things. And that's the cornerstone of the secret space program technology that's being withheld. It's one thing that once the cat is out of the bag, they can't put, it, they can't let, put the genie back in the bag bottle cat. Uh, 
Um, so uh, everybody knows about it. And it was a marvel. So if you look, think about that big, that big cavern that I showed a few slides ago, that was all wired. Uh, the flooring was all electrified and creating artificial gravity up to about 30 feet, uh, 10 meters above the surface that it was on. And actually, people got injured um, being on ships because they would cross the beam to make it shorter. Instead of going through the ship and making the gravity harder and harder per deck, they would aim the beams so that the gravity was 1G per deck. But some people that were at the right height would get hip injuries because the beam only in this height would have slightly more gravity than everywhere else. So it caused injuries for that reason. Uh, they abducted uh, sculptors, famous sculptors from Europe, and had them build these. So they were abducted and had their memories erased and got put back, probably without pay. And they were being farmed out to other colonies after they were finished with these. The Ceres colony Deutsch culture was big on horses. Their belief was that the 30-year uh, war in the 1600s, that they had defeated an extraterrestrial threat. And they said, we did it on horses. That was their motto. That was like their fighting motto. We did it with horses. And uh, they, they honestly believed that the Catholic Church at the time was an extraterrestrial influence that was trying to dominate Europe. And that war basically broke the stranglehold of the Catholic Church on Europe. And they were able to practice other religions. And that's like when the Amish began. And they really left and started to settle America. The, the Deutsch culture came across Northern America and settled. So that was a big deal. They had battle, uh, battle scenes around their money. And there was a lot of artwork everywhere of old generals with swords and the cannon scenes. These guys were there. Um, You know, to be honest, they were kind of dicks, but in a good way. It's like they, they behaved like they were the cool guys, and, you know, they were a working class ET as well. So they, they kind of stuck to themselves, and um, they weren't all bad, but they just had a way about them that was kind of like it was the um, high school mentality of the guys that sat at the cool table. They didn't want you around, and they had that, that kind of mentality, so... But um, we're starting to see other things. Um, Dr. Evan Strong in Australia found a ex uh, skeleton that was just like one of these guys, an elongated skull with uh, giant eyes, sockets, and the elbow is kind of higher up, the dimensions. And he found it and, and began to stake off the, uh, the dig. And the government came in and, and tried to find him $500,000 and took all the evidence. These doors were on the outside. So you ask, how did they get in there? Um, this was inside what's called a cold trap in one of the craters inside the, near the Alhana Mons in that crater there. So this crater is actually, uh, I think it's like three miles across. One of them had, was, was situated in a way that the sunlight never shined on that wall. So that never got sunlight. So they had a hologram that would hide it. And then when a ship got close, those lights would kick on across the top. And they shut the hologram. And they always had problems with these doors. Those doors were, uh, you know, and I'm not 100% I'm not on this, but those doors were a few million years old. And they were 1,000 thousand feet tall. Uh, maybe 1,500 feet tall and a few thousand feet wide. And that's how the ships got in. They always had problems with them not closing all the way, so they had air pumps that would balance the atmosphere in the hangar bay. And the hangar bay was something like 19 kilometers long. 
So the air would slowly leak out these doors, and um, that was an issue. Uh, it, that's an overlap in testimony with Johann Fritz as well. He was stationed on Ceres Colony once. That was his testimony. Long before he never heard of me and came out and said that, and uh, he said that Ceres Colony had hypoxia like the whole colony was, but really it was just the, the hangar bay area from those doors. Um, this is like a flight path I remember when I, when I, I wish I had included the slide of uh, Enceladus with all the geysers. So there was a geyser that happened and Enceladus, I believe it's Enceladus that has all the geysers around Saturn. We flew over it once and I tried to get extra credit and I didn't leave my post because I wanted a higher work score. I was leading, I was very competitive with it. and. Everybody told me what a dummy I was for not stopping and looking out the window because it was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. So when we got to series count, when the geyser went off in the Okotter crater, which was much shorter than that, that's 50 miles across, um, I did stop and look out the window and make sure that I looked at that and had a chat with, a, with an officer that these white spots are made out of salt. I said, all that stuff down there, we should be able to scoop it up and do, sell it for something. And he said, maybe you can scoop it up and take a bath. <laughs> you know, like he kind of picked on me about it. Um, but it turned out that NASA confirmed it. And I had called it out that those were salt in 2016 when the Dawn probe got there. And I went on record with Dr. Sala. And I can tell a lot of you guys already know this because I talk about it quite a bit, but I'm very proud of this. Um, I went, uh, I went on record and he said, do you want to take it back? The original Dawn results, they wanted to say that it was uh, sulfur and a few other chemicals, and it turned out to be salt. So, uh, Mark's not here, but that's his old stomping grounds that his uh, uh, testimony is based on, Diego Garcia being a spaceport, and he was testimony. Uh, he, he told you earlier that down underneath this was where he spent his time in prison and where those where that basically all happened we were we were dropping off cargo to that uh that tarmac we would go in the middle of the night quite often and pick up cargo anything military surplus we'd pick up there there's kind of a great that's kind of like what the ship looked like that we were on um and that was the sea deck where we would go for the observation and the galley and I'm sorry, guys. I'm going to burn right, I'm going to burn right through this because I want to get to the memory recall stuff that's newer. Uh, so the question of life, everybody knows what this is. This is the Hubble Deep Field with all the uh, galaxies in there. So each, each one of these blips is a trillion stars, and, you know, that gives you the math. Um, just wanted to get through that, and then I kind of want to go to uh, where we're at since then. So at this conference, there's a lot of people here. I mean, this is a tough question for me to ask you. Uh, but how many of you feel you've been involved in some way? So it's a significant percentage of this crowd. And there is, a, you know, a lot of people here for that reason. How many of you out of those people would ha say that you have fragmented memories, that you can't remember everything? Right. So that's really what we're disclosing here. When you talk about the secret space program, the secrecy is based on the ability to erase your memories. 
since I went public in 2016, and I've been doing this and doing YouTubes and had the book come out, everybody, um, not everybody, but quite often people reach out to me from that group of people that raised their hands and want to know how I remembered everything. I guess I can touch on the Farsight info that, you know, I did a Zoom call with Courtney Brown and, and you know, they remote viewed me, but at the same time said that they helped me remember my, my memories, like put in a block for the, for the, I really wanted to remember at the end of my, my time there. I paced back and forth and I said it over and over again hundreds of times. I want to, I'm not going to forget it. I'm not going to forget. I'm not going to forget her. And uh, I got an MRI scan uh, right before I got my memories back. There's a, there's a lot of different factors that I could say that's why I got my memories back. It's any, it's any one of those things, a given thing. So I have a lot of memory recall for what happened to me. And most people that I talk to don't have that much recall. But that's that. That's the question: is what does it? What what is going to help you get your memories back if you were taken and if you were involved, or do you even want those memories back? These things that should be remembered. That's that's a equally profound and equally important question. Um, people contact me all the time, so much that I can't keep up with it, and so I started charging to kind of thread it out. I got a few people that were kind of quacky, and uh, so I put a fee there and. It, because I just couldn't get up with, I couldn't get back with everybody. I think you over there, you made an appointment and I couldn't get to you. And uh, because they come in waves, I'll do an interview online and I'll get 20 people in a day that want to talk and they get buried under the next set of 20 people in emails and I couldn't get back with everybody. That's, I'm not bragging, I'm saying that's how big of a problem this is. That's how common it is. It's not just once in a while. There are thousands of people like this. There are thousands and thousands of people that feel they've been involved that have profoundly disturbing memories and they don't make sense of it because they don't have the memories around it to explain it that I was fortunate and blessed to get I was blessed to get my memories back and un unwind the damage that was done um, I came up with a few things so there's only so much I can do it fell in my lap and there's only there's only so much I can do I didn't go to school for this I'm a woodworker by trade and um, but after talking to so many people, I kind of learned a few things that I kind of picked up a few tricks along the way and uh, learned a few things that work, that seem to work for people. There are things, uh, let me get this right. So this is an example of my timeline. The first thing I tell everybody to do is let's organize what you do remember into a timeline. And somebody that calls me for a consultation, I ask them, when, when, firstly, when were you born? And I asked them, go ahead, tell me, tell me what you remember. And I'm writing it down. But then I go, wait a minute, when was that? Because what I found is that really people don't pay attention to when it happened. People pay attention to what happened and how it made them feel. And they get, it gets lost in long-term memory. So the very first thing I do is try to unpack it and put a date on it. And the reason I do that, I'm going to go back and forth between these two slides. So... These are, this is kind of a graphic representation of how your memories work. So everybody here has really good short-term memory. You remember what we were doing for breakfast today because you have the chronological evidence, memories of what you did since then. You have a timestamp of breakfast. You know it was in the morning, and you know it was breakfast, and you can start to think, oh, yeah, I did, I did talk to you about not making my appointment. So, right? 
So I remember that. That was this morning because I remember what I did since then. I have all those memories since then, and they're, they're, they're active in my mind. Long-term memories are kind of different. You, they get fuzzy because you don't have, you begin to scramble them up and not give an address of time on when it happened. And so they could have happened here, could have happened here, I don't know. It might have been in here, it might have been in 85, it might have been in 82, I don't know. I really don't care because it was 30, 40 years ago. It was 40 years ago. So I don't really care what happened in between. All I know is that I talked to you about missing my appointment back in 80-something. So that's the problem with the long-term memories, and people don't get past the block. The blocks don't fail overnight. They fail over long times. So after decades of the experience of being taken, then the blocks begin to wear off, and that's when people tend to get their memories back 20 or 30 years later. That was my case as well. So what I found is that when you make a timeline and you to give those long-term memories an address on where to be, so what happened? I was taken. When, when was that? I was six. Okay, what happened next? My mom and dad, something happened. Okay, what happened then? Then I saw a gray. When was that? I was 10. Okay, now we're giving those addresses. What happened in between that? Oh, you know, I never thought of it, but we moved. And now you, we're, we're assigning addresses and, and shaking out that clutter from the other slide. All that clutter that makes no sense that you just got a, a series of events that's in a pile that doesn't make any sense, a series of things that you remember, you can start giving those addresses and that provides room to add more. And sure enough, if you have a few memory techniques, sorry, I gotta get this together. If you have a few memory techniques and you dwell on it the same way that you do any other natural memory, the name of a song or what you did or when you're the last birthday party, what happened at that last birthday party, if you dwell on it and then relax, and then dwell on it again and then relax, the memories come. I developed this because I started doing interviews and I started getting my feet held to the fire. And people said, well, if you were there, then what was the bathroom like? I didn't, have any, I didn't give it any mind, but I sure had to go to the bathroom and I knew those memories were there too. And so I began to do that. I began to, say, to think, what was the bathroom? What, how did I brush my teeth? And after time, I, I learned that you know, first thing in the morning, and I would think about it and then let it rest a day or two and then do it again the first thing in the morning in a couple days, the memories would come. And once they come, more memories come with them. It's a keystone memory. One leads to another. That's just how we're built. And uh, though I'm lucky and blessed that I had that long-term memory and I got as far as I, ha I can, I found that everybody else can do it too. Um, even people that I work with that don't even remember any of their childhood, they, they're like, I don't remember anything before nine years old, nothing. Um, I found that if you work at it and you're patient, that you, do, you can man manage those memories out. And the timeline is the blueprint for it, and it works. The other thing about the timeline work um, that I found, and it's a little shocking, is that you can predict when something happened. So this one, uh, this is a pre so I have a book that's going to come out that's a notepad that's arranged like this, and these pips here will be in 10 years, and uh, so that people can do 20-year increments, and then towards the end of the book, you can zoom in on it and begin to add memories. And what I found is that on a 20-year cycle, and it doesn't have to be the secret space program, and it doesn't have to be a, a gray ET involvement, it can be a lot of things, I found it very varied is that you can look at it and go, when did it start? And they go, it started here. 
and I can roll the clock forward and add 20 years to that number so I could say, oh, it was an 82. So in 2002, tell me, did anything weird happen? And they go, oh, wow, how'd you know? And I found that there are cycles involved in this. So alien contact is based on a 20-year cycle. I talked to once to Dr. Andrew Bashago on a phone call. We talked for a couple hours, and he explained to me that Project Pegasus was locked in 20-year increments of time travel. He said that it was a uh, condition of the field of the Earth that added an address to when they traveled time, and it was locked in a 20-year. So they could go back 80 years, not 82. They could go back 100 years, not 105. They had to go in 20-year increments, the original Project Pegasus. And uh, I, it seems to be a common theme among not just people in the United States secret space program, but contact from all over the world, from all different levels of technology, from different kinds of ET species, from people I've worked with, that there's a 20-year cycle. And once you start to iron out the memories that they have into a timeline form, you can begin to predict when it's going to end and kind of get a vague idea of when they're going to remember more. Um, so, have I blabbed it all the way? No, I got plenty of time. Uh, I really don't have a ton more after that, slide-wise, so I'd like to open it up to, to questions for you guys, if there's anything you'd like to ask. Come on up here. Come on up here and grab the microphone, please. Hello. <clears throat> Have you ever connected with anyone that you served with in this, in your current life? Yes. A few. Um, I mean, how about your girlfriend? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I never get asked that. <laughs> so, um, again, in the book... In the book, I changed all their names. So I tend to, I tend to rename people by their middle name when I, when I speak about them in this, in this sense. So when I, well, like for instance, if I work with somebody and I say, you know, uh, let's say I, a person named John David, whatever, Smith, and I say, well, we're going to call you just for, so we could make sense of this. We're going to refer to you in the space program in your 20 years, David. And you in this life on earth, we're going to call John, so we have an identity to work with. And so I tend to call people their middle names. So I'm trying to deflect away from the Marie question. Is it working? <laughs> I found her. I told her everything. She was happily married with a beautiful family. She's well off. She's a beautiful person. She's a kind soul. I contacted her. I introduced myself, and I told her everything. And she entertained me thinking I was wrong. And over time, over months of speaking to her back and forth and presenting my case, the memories began to come back for her, and it destroyed her. She began drinking, and her life was changed for the worse. And I don't talk to her now for that reason. It is not fair. It is not a healthy thing to force this on anybody. Anybody that served and had these kind of horrible things that they've experienced by being a slave, not a participant, but a slave in these programs, to have the memories thrust on them unwillingly without them, no, without them doing it is a dangerous thing to do. 
And that was my lesson that I learned, and I won't do that again. There are other people that I've met that I've known, that I know were up there, but I don't tell them I wouldn't do that again. If somebody asks me questions about this and what I've been through, I'm more than willing to share, and I'm an open book. Anybody that comes to me and wants the information, I'm more than willing to share. But to go out and force this information on, this, on the level that I know it, I found to be very harmful to people. And you gotta let pe you got to let the sleeping people sleep at a certain point. They have to want to, to know more. They have to want to know this and in order to um, digest it and to withstand the shock that it is that our world is really not what we think it is. It's nothing like what we think it is. So, yes, I found her. Yes, I found others. It's funny, um, not funny, but most people don't want to talk publicly about it. It happened to me. I had the cart before the horse. I didn't want to do this. I should have made an alias name. I should have made a cool name. I should have done so many things, but I was just so bewildered with all the knowledge that I had that I just started talking to anybody and before I knew it, they put me in front of a camera and by then it was too late to unwind it all. So here I am, I'm just, I just kind of went with it. Right, which, you know, I think we all knew that that's the reason why you remembered, because you wanted to remember her. That's absolutely right, so, yeah. you know, you. every relationship, long or short, has a introduction and a peak and a decline, and many of them end, or many of them have an ebb and flow, an up and down, and her and I were separated at the very peak of it. And so that motivated me to not forget. I wanted to remember her. I was at the peak of my uh, um, connection with her at that time. So that was the motivation when I was being put back to the moon to go through the process of, of, of deleting my memory or blanking my memory. That's what I didn't know. I didn't want to forget her. And so that was what I was fighting to remember the whole, I was combative through the entire process with them. Eric? Hey, bud. Hey, Tony, how's it going? Uh, I want to say first and foremost, thank you very much for the timeline tool. Anybody out there that has considerations, it's an excellent tool. In your discussion tonight on this tool, you had said something I hadn't heard you mention before, that it could be utilized to determine an end of service, sounded like you were mentioning. Could you clarify that function of this tool, perchance? Yeah. Um... So, and again, like I'm not an expert. I didn't go to school for this. I uh, worked with people. People got a hold of me, and, and I kind of, um, you know, gleaned it out of out of dealing with this, hearing the same thing over and over again, hundreds and hundreds of times. What I found is that, especially in the '80s, that the 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 process of deleting your memory or blank slating, whatever you want to call it, that process wasn't as effective as as it is in the 2000s, the late '90s. People that are taken then really have a, have a hard time remembering. Or maybe they just have to wait a more for that block to wear off. But in the early 80s, those people that were taken then really tend to have a great deal of memories, and especially the intake event. So the event where you were taken, the first 30 minutes of my contact, when I had that guy a million slides ago pop up in my bedroom and take me, I never forgot that. I remembered that the next day in school. Well, a couple days later, I, the first 30 minutes of the abduction was never erased. And so that's the intake event. So what I found is that when somebody has a strong set of intake memories of their event, that you can roll the clock forward, dead, dead to rights, 20 years, 
and there's an exit event. There's another event. It's never a one and done. Nobody sees an ET. Nobody, nobody sees an ET in person just once, period. And that's what I found. And so I'm using that intake event to, as a basis on a timeline form, and it, it pans out more than not. Can you share the story when you went to the other planet um, to meet with their leaders? And it was a planet that didn't believe in, that didn't, they weren't that advanced. They didn't believe in aliens. Um, and uh, you, you thought it was something special. They gave you a glass pad and it came back. And you, you explained it as like uh, a playbook that they do with the planet's governments as far as like they visit, they meet with them, and then they meet with a different group. Can you explain all that? You could do a lot better than I can because I think that's important for all of us to know because it explains a lot of what we're, what we've, of the secrecy. Of Where we're at right now. Yeah, exactly. That's right. It's a, well, it was, um, I'll tell you what, I've been searching for an artist. I've taken so many swings at having some artwork made of that guy of showing what that being looked like. And I'm st the, the search goes on for an artist So because I would love to show you. Everybody asks, the closest thing I can say is that he looked like a rat human. And if that conjures that he did not, he, didn't, he wasn't Splitter from the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> he, he had more of a human face. Imagine, imagine uh, what's his name, Splinter? Splitter from the Ninja Turtles, but with a human face. And that's really what he looked like. And uh, about this tall. And uh, the translator didn't work great with him, so he had sounded like he had a broken English accent, which the Germans made fun of him when he wasn't around. But I had great respect for him. He was a very uh, he was very comfortable in his own skin kind of person. Uh, you know, you get different in, uh, different uh, impressions from people, and he was a very likable being. Um, that story I went through it with Gaia and. Um, Jay Widener had introduced me to Jason Rice, and we were making phone calls with each other. We picked, you know, every Sunday we would call each other up, how's it going, man? And we, we had actually collaborated. Jason Rice and I were going to have a conference in New York at one point, and it, got, it, it fell through. It didn't work out. But um, when I told him about that, and I, he was telling me about a world that they had done that. They had gone down and begun to trade with, and then they got out of there, and the ETs would come in, and there was actually like a false flag event, and combat would happen, and they would take over, they would offer the solution, and then take over the planet. That that was their playbook, and I, because it was one of the few missions that I did away from the ship. I was, I still was in a list for, for missions, for away missions, I was still on the list. And I had led the predictivity out of the two cargo engineers for that, for the last, for the previous few months. And so they gave me a pad and I, it was a really easy job. We were told that we were going in to negotiate a deal with a less advanced. So they were like at the technological level of, of us in the 60s, 50s or 60s. You know, they had the old vehicles and it, it looked, like a, looked like an army outpost on another planet and we had to, we landed out to sea and we took an LCAC, a converted LCAC, which is a marine uh, troop transport hovercraft. And we went through their swamp, we landed out to sea on the ship, they lowered it onto the ocean and we rode it in with um, uh, two American personnel that we picked up at Diego Garcia who were gonna be blank slated and got hazed the entire way. Uh, but we went in and we met with them and I, they brought me along because I was in charge of 
the stacking reports and how to arrange the cargo in the ship in my base. I was the engineer. And so they had me measure the boxes that they had to offer. It was, a, it was an ore. It was a mineral that was uh, more plentiful on their, on their planet. Or there was some, something value to it. And they came packaged in a box that was probably six feet by 10 feet by six feet, kind of a container. And I measured them and I calculated how many trips it would take back to the ship and to load up how many we could fit and how, how many trips we'd have to make to that planet to complete the deal. That was the whole reason they brought me. And at the end of the deal, when we were on the LCAC going back to the ship and going back, I, I did the math on the little, with the software they gave me on a pad and I handed it to the captain and he said, don't even bother because they had no intention of making the deal at all. Even from when we showed up, it was all just a, an act. It was an entire act. They were, had no intention of trading with them. It was the first step in a process of another extraterrestrial race, probably the Draco or another race that's in the same group of, of people, all one entity with many species. They were going to have another species come in there and negotiate a separate deal, and we were going to walk away from it, and then they were going to have a conflict, and we would come in and present a solution, and they were going to take over their government. And that was... Basically, uh, Jason Rice said that's exactly what we did. He was in the IDARF, I-D-A-R-F force. He was a member of IDARF, and they were working alongside the Draco to do that, and he said they did that on several worlds. Um, but that was one of my away missions, something you don't forget. That's, uh, that's an experience you don't forget. And, um, and that's most likely what happened here. Right, uh, or getting warmed up to, uh, you know, I got to tell you that overall, when we talk about disclosure, what's going to happen, uh, we're all, we're kind of on the cusp of something happening in, in that, in that uh, direction. We're all, we know that we're at a disclosure time, so the world is kind of busting at the seams. They're not going to silence it, and we're going to get a disclosure. So um, I'm of the mind that it's going to be a, of a more positive thing, and I think that a lot of, like, you know, cautiously optimistic that what's going to happen, it's going to, that we're kind of out of the dark yet. And they're going to give us, you know, a sanitized version of what I shared with you, of what I went through, and probably not tell us about everything at once, but we are going to, once it happens, it's going to be rapid. Like disclosure isn't going to be a slow process. It'll happen very rapidly. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for sharing your story and for being so consistent everywhere. Um, what struck me was when you had a show of hands in the room, frankly, and I saw how, because I was sitting in the back, and I saw how many hands went up, and how many of us are drawn here, and I just, I guess my question is, and of course, who knows, but how widespread is this? How widespread, how many of us have been used and wiped? How big is this? Do you have a sense of that? So... I have a best guess, and because I've been asked this many times myself, and I actually kind of pondered on it and did the math. So it was a four-man crew that took me, or whatever you want to call them. Um, but a, four, it was a four-man crew, and they had a doctor that came in and left uh, through that. So if you take a facility the size of a shopping mall and you put four-man crews in there, I forget the number, but I came up with, the, with uh, you know, it was about a four-hour process you know, in and out. And so a four-man crew doing two guys two, in an eight-hour day do two people. 
in the size of a shopping mall worth, uh, I forget how many hundred you could fit in there. I kind of worked it out on paper, but I came up with a number of half a million a year in a facility the size of a mall. So on the back of the moon, you can have hundreds of those facilities. And when you think about it over the course of 10 years, we're, we're into the millions. We're into the, you know, 15, 20 million people over 10 years. And so that's a significant portion of society. And when you look at the people that are not drawn to this information versus the people that are here in this room and watching these videos and, and tuning in, uh, book sales and things like that, you can see that that's probably about the pie slice. We're probably, you know, in, in the 10 to 15 million uh, year-ish. I'm screwing the math up because I'm wandering up, but it's in that range. Um, you know, a, a one one facility at half a million a year. Can I do a follow-up? So with this disclosure that's coming, do you sense that this is going to pop open and more people are going to remember? Or Absolutely. Is this, to, is this going to be, like, will there be a way to check? Absolutely. So I'm actually a little bit apprehensive that the information gets disclosed and that not just a room full of 100 or 200 people show up on my email, <laughs> but 20 million people. So, Help me, Tony. <laughs> re you. Really, that's, that's, a, that's a real deal. So I got my memories back when Randy Kramer explained. I had my memories all along. When Randy Kramer explained that I could have been taken for more than one night, I always thought I was taken. I always thought that when I had separate memories that were longer, that I was taken several times. I thought, oh, I was taken this time, and I must have been taken again because I was older. They must have came back and got me because I remember being a kid in this memory, but I have this memory of being 20 years old. And so I must have been older, and they must have taken me several times, and I don't remember it. But then when I saw Randy Kramer's interview, that they take you for 20 years and put you back, I went, that's what they did. And then the memories came. It crashed in, and, it all, and then I made a timeline. And it all made sense. It all it all shook out. You know, it was like process of elimination. So that's what's going to happen on a mass scale. I mean, what is the percentage of our audience? When you think about 300 plus million people in the United States, our audience is tiny, very small amount. So the people don't remember because they don't have a con because Hollywood is not going to tell them this. They they obscure it. So when you see it in a real in a real testimony in a in a in a interview form. People are getting their memories jogged all the time. That's why whenever I do an interview and it's a new audience, I get a spike in the volume of people that want to talk to me because it's the first time they're hearing it. I was the first time that you heard this, Jackie, right? And you immediately freaked out and you had to call me. You know what I mean? Like, I was the first time that a lot of people that have reached out to me, they saw me on Gaia or on YouTube and they went, what? And it's jogged their memory because now all of a sudden a lot of memories that didn't make any sense at all had merit. And they were, whoa, 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 I, I went through that. And imagine this happening in a major, imagine this, imagine my testimony, you know, on CNN. And so, you know, or even bigger than that. So millions of people potentially are going to go through the same process of like, holy shit, that was me too. That's what happened. Oh my God, that's what happened. That's what I said to myself. Oh my God, that's what they did. Oh my God. And I, I wandered, I staggered around for days thinking that. So, yeah, I mean, and that's kind of what's in store. It's going to happen. It's not if it's when. Hi. Hi. Thank you, Tony, for being here and doing everything for us, for humanity. 
Um, I had the pleasure of seeing you in person well over a year ago, and I can definitely see there's a lot of integration, healing, things that are needed, you know, along our journey. Uh, are there things that you use specifically regarding your own healing? Oh, wow, man. Uh, yeah, we got all night here. <laughs> the reason I talked in the first place was, was, a, was a desperation. Um, like I said, I, my, my motivation for researching the evidence, when I tell you, you know, about the CIA documents and I, finding annual current in Peru, looking at Peru online and, and doing all that, my motivation was to prove it wrong. I was hoping that I would go look at the house in Seattle, that it was, didn't exist. I was hoping that I would look at Peru and the route to Santa Marta and it wouldn't be there. I was hoping it wasn't there so that I could go to a counselor and, and just figure out what happened and maybe I banged my head or something. I was hoping for an easy out, but everything started checking out and I had to face the harsh reality of the abuse that I went through. You know what I mean? Like I'm a guy, uh, I'm, a, I'm a woodworker, construction guy from Michigan and I had, to, I had to process the fact that I was used as a sex slave and raped hundreds of times. I had to process that. And I had to process that there are abusive ETs in the world and above it, and that are in charge, that, that, my, that, our, that our version of the world is nothing like what it is. It's absolutely nothing like what is presented, and I had to process that. So that was where the healing started, and I had no idea what I was gonna do. The only thing I could do was share the information, and by talking about it, which is what I recommend to other people, it, which sadly, um, people don't have the ability to. So not everybody wants to go public, but most of us, most people that are taken in the program do not end up with somebody that was in the program. So we had Will, Will and Jody on the other night. That's a rare thing. Most people that I talk to, I go, well, how's it going? What does your spouse think? And they're like, they're freaked out. They don't want to hear about it. You know, mine included. And so nobody wants to do that. So if you have nobody in home to talk to about it, and you have nobody in your social circle to talk to about it, that's the therapy. Because nobody in therapy is going to talk about it either. You're not going to go to a, to a therapy se session and get a fair shake with, the, with that one of these. You're going to get medicated quick. And that's the therapy. Speaking about it is the therapy. Fortunately, it was too late for me to take it back, so I just kept talking about it on interviews. And that was the, that was the healing. This is the healing. This is it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to feel this is a weight off my shoulders that the book is out. And when I'm done here tonight and I walk out there, the weight is lifted from it. And I'm, you know, slightly healed. And it's been six years of doing it. So that's why I've processed it. Because it, it, was, it was horrible. It was horrible. And it is for so many others. Hi. So Hello. I have, like, two kind of observations and one question. Um, I just wanted, when I read about the Philadelphia experiment, they said they jumped 40 years exactly, so that kind of corroborates your thing too, just that. And um, I was also thinking about, I, about two months ago, I was like, why did David Bowie call Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars? Did you ever think about that? That's really bizarre. <laughs> and then my question is like, do you know anything about that barrier around the solar system, or was that before your time in space? Uh, you're talking about the quarantine, like an energetic yeah. barrier? So, 
it was probably 1998, we went to another star system to do trade with them and we made one mission and set the deal up. We went back home and spent the night and we came back a few days as agreed later and we were held outside of the solar system by an energy field. The guy that came through and showed us, did the, pro the progress reporting for the day, showed us the graphic and we none of us could figure out a power source that would do that but our ship would, we were at, we had gone to another system that was quarantined, and that does corroborate that story from some other guy. Um, so that was real. That was something that happened to us. Um, so, but we were amazed at the power. We thought the technology. We had the technology to quarantine small areas like that and stop stop traffic in, but it was an entire star system, and the power. We thought we we couldn't even calculate the power necessary to do that. So it was something very impressive and we were kept out of there. We, they never went back. So they, after the quarantine for that system was over, I remember asking if we were going back and they said no, they, they would never go back there. So whatever happened uh, effectively ended the deal they had arranged. Uh, what was the other part of your question? Um, David Bowie, do you have any? Why, yeah, why I became a huge that? fan of David Bowie in 2017. So like when he died. yeah, uh, you know, Man, this is a whole other hard thing to kind of bring up. Um, I was the guy in high school that would sit around the bonfire party with the kids from school, 50 kids, and after I got a few drinks in me, I say, aliens are real, I got abducted. And I did it all the time, and they think I was crazy, and I'd sober up and regret it the next day, and do it again in a few months. And in the college years, there were people that came up to me and started asking me questions about Mars Colony Corp. So there were people in, that were taken in their college years that were, had all their memories intact. And I sat in on conversations because they, they, I was in the club and I didn't understand what they were talking about, but they were talking about the secret space program around me, knowing that I didn't have my memories back, knowing that I wasn't gonna put it together, but also knowing that I participated. And I sat around that, and I can count probably eight times that that happened. So there are people among us, maybe not in this room, maybe in this room, there are people among us, quite a few people, that go into these programs and come back with all their memories intact and get a paycheck out of it. And that guarantees their silence. They get a paycheck for an X amount of dollars, and they go buy a house with it. And if they speak, they got to pay the money back. And that keeps them quiet. And these are people that go with the grain programming. These are typically the Marine Corps and the soldiers that are going up. But there are people that are fully aware of what's going on and they're sent, they know what's, they, they have all their memories back, but they're not gonna talk about it because they're not gonna cough up their bonus. And it's that simple, but I sat around that many times. Um, oh, not many times, but about eight times, about eight people like that I could go back and I, I've, I've wrestled with contacting them and kind of opening that can of worms, those guys I knew that are still friends of mine on Facebook, and but I don't, and I block them from my posts and things. I just, I just, whatever. Um, but that's a reality. That's a real thing. You know, I just that's a testimony that's on one end, and it's not fair for me to name drop kind of thing or force it, but it's real. That's a reality. Hey, hello. Hi, Tony. Um, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Um, what? What can you say about the spirituality of the different beings that you uh, interacted with in space, or lack thereof? Oh, what a totally badass question. Um, you know, so I am working on a second book. 
And uh, Jackie says, I'll never get it done myself because it's too much. And she's my witness, though. So if anything uh, that I'm con- that's in the second book that's going to come to light without me, she's already witnessed. I've kind of told her the outline of it. But the second book is going to detail, in the book, I talk about a time of being taken and traded to another species for another 10 years from Ceres Colony, that they had a technology that bypassed the 20-year thing safely and that they made a deal with them and we went and actually did labor and it is a it is a story that it's already confusing enough when you talk about the 20 and back on an interview in two hours to try to squeeze in 20 years of memories so that was something that i just never did because it's already so hard to package this for people to understand but the second book is going to cover a great deal of spiritual spirituality because what happened was well you gotta read it I'm a big fan of the law of one and spirituality. I'm a big, I, I am, I always was a believer in a creator God the whole time. They tried to program that out of me in the programs. They push atheism on you. And I was always, I always had a faith in a creator God, not in, you know, the religious sanitized way. Like I, I was, I'm a student of religion. I've read a lot of them. I've read the Torah, I've read the Bible, I've read, I've even read the Satanic Bible. I wanted to find evidence of ETs in, in my early 20s, and I read every religious text I could get my hands on. Um, but I always had the faith in that, and what I found was that the law of one, the, being, the other beings that I, that I met, and our world around us works exactly like that, that their consciousness is, has, uh, you know, I, don't, I hate, kind of don't like the word density, but it gains density and then comes back. Like, all, not all people are the same. Well, all people are created equal. I love everybody, but not everybody's the same. Everybody has a different set of gifts, and some people do behave more like animals than people, and it's because they're in their first octave of this density, and they've got to live a couple times before they actually behave. So the law of one spirituality, that framework, I believe, is, is closest to the reality. And the few advanced beings that I met out there, and in the second book in particular, um, that was the case. Thank you. And the big secret is we're all basically stars that are visiting each other. Go ahead. Sorry. No, it's fine. Um, I, I'm nervous because I, I, I need to do this, and I apologize ahead of time. Um, and I want your just first reaction and advice, but I have, I have like a whole bunch of no memory which I know is, is something there. But the one memory I have that's over and over clearly is I was 10 or 12, and I woke up, and I'm like, those fuckers put me in backwards, and I was looking at the back of my head, like energetically in my body, and I had to flip myself around, and it was, you know, it was an adult voice saying those fuckers put me in backwards. So I just want your first hit on So where do I start from now? For yeah. me, you know, quick. Hit so that's not too far out of my wheelhouse, man. Um, right. People contact me, and there's always a bottleneck. So when I start asking you what else happened or what do you, that me- missing memory, when was that? When people start contact me and they want to unpack or, or, you know, my take on 
things like this. Right. There's a bottleneck. You can't just describe it all in five minutes. There's, you know, uh, and then this, and it sounds crazy, and I'm like, slow down. So with you, I would, again, for my first question is when? When did that happen? 10, 10 or 12. I'll 10 or 12 narrow, years old. So, narrow it down. I mean, so we can do this whole thing here, but it's a whole, it's, there's sure. a process to no, this, but it's expect. when and where, and then mom, Some dad, grandpa, uncle in the Navy, Army. You know what I'm saying? Like, where, where are we at? What else do you remember? And then where are you at now? And what happened, uh, you know, like, uh, yes. I like to take how old you are, when you were born, when it happened, and then start kind of dissecting other other things. Yeah, I so remember. I would just only classify that at this point as an event. That's an event that happened. It's, it's an event on a timeline. So we have an event and we have a time. And now I want to look for other events and other times because nobody is one and done with this. Nobody has just one instance where they have an event. There's always other events. Am I right? Yes. With your case, there's other uh, events. Yeah. yeah. So I would leave it at that. The thing is, we are going to look at when, and you're going to look at other events. Because, to be fair, we do remember things, but we don't remember them necessarily accurately at first. You know, there were things that I got wrong in the beginning that came back and made sense later. So your memory is elastic, and there, you know, you remember it this way. But if we uncover a bunch of other things, you may regain more memories of that in that event. And so you really have to look at your life as a whole, not just what happened that time. So um, a lot of times, most of the time, including myself, when people tell other people what they went through, it doesn't sound, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And so a lot of people share their UFO experience and other people listen to it and they believe them, and, but they just can't relate to it because it doesn't make sense. So you have to look at your life as a whole and kind of unpack how it does and kind of digest it because it does make sense. You did experience this. You had an event. It, there is, you, there's a way to make sense out of it. And I found that this is the, my best tool. That, that's what I came up with. So, uh, you know, if you want to sit down with us sometime, you know, just, just no, let me know. I, I, yeah, I'd love to. And I, I, the reason I apologize ahead of time is because I needed to. No, that's. It's like therapy to stand it, here and be like, yeah, this It this is. Happened. It is. I know when, this happened. When people have something like this happen to them, it's profound. If you can't explain something that you know you experienced and nobody else experienced it. And there's no, you can't just go, you know, if I got in a car crash today. How many of you have been in a car crash? So I can talk to you about it and you, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. You understand exactly what I'm talking about and it makes sense to you. There's, it's an easy conversation to have. But waking up in your body backwards, how many had that happen? Nobody. So you don't, it's a, it's a harder conversation to have. So there's a way about it and I'm glad you asked that for other people that have other events that are not like that, that are unexplainable because this is the only best I got for un, un uncovering it. Well, thank you. Hi. Oh, thanks for that. Wow. So, hi, Tony. Hello. So I have a burning question, which is, um, what makes you think that this disclosure thing is going to pop off real soon? And, it, and how do you know? Where did you get that? How I don't, thing is, I don't know. Um, but really, for the most part, I'm in the audience the same as all you guys. Uh, about disclosure. I know that in order for the people that took me to disclose, it would be very, it would have been worse by now. Something worse would have happened than the flu. Um, 
And we're seeing, we're seeing. So you're saying just the fact that we're here. I immediately regret saying that. So you're saying just the fact that we're here means that they're not going to shut us down, you think? I think that the 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 raw military complex that is at the secret space program, the raw military arm, you know, that is basically running, it has ran it and when I was up there, had a different solution for what's going on now. So we're seeing something that they wouldn't we're seeing a we're seeing a, a uh, series of events play out that they wouldn't they would not do, that they would tend to not do. We're also seeing radical changes in our power consumption, which is something that everybody agrees and other contactees. And I'm a big fan of Elena Germain, you know, we're, you know, we're friends. I'm, I, I'm supportive of Elena Danan and her information and Michael Sala. And we're seeing things play out exactly like that group would, would have us do. So our power consumption is leading the way. Uh, the, the, the fossil fuel, the power grid, and the electrical devices, those are something that kind of both sides have to kind of do. They're on a different, they're on a different uh, schedule from each other, but it's something that's got to happen, and we're seeing, we're seeing steps towards that happening. And we really have to get our power consumption to where we're, what is it, what is, I can't pronounce his name right, Michael, the Caccio, the guy that's on the History Channel, Thank you. Him, he puts us at about on the scale of uh, civilization, we're at a 0.7. And it, whereas uh, 0.1 uses all of the, harnesses all of the power of the earth, point, or, sorry, a, a type 1 civilization, then a type 2 is the uh, power of the solar system, and type 3 is the galaxy. So we're at a 0.7 right now. We need to be a 0.1 before they're going to deal with us. And we're starting to see all the funding, the trillion dollar, the trillion flu dollars, are funding that to happen, to come to a reality. So that's a positive thing. So that's, that's one of the things I'm, I'm holding my head on. The second thing is the canary in the coal mine um, for me. And I, I want to be very clear that this is a opinion, just kind of a hunt, like an intuitive hunch from what I know, but cryptocurrency is the canary in the coal mine. So if they get rid of crypto on us, then we're going to be ran, we're going to have a negative disclosure if we have crypto because if you're a billionaire and you want to move half a billion dollars of gold to space it doesn't really make any sense if you're going to go to the series colony corporation with a billion dollars you're not going to take gold and you're not going to take a credit card you're going to do it with cryptocurrency so that's what's going to allow us to do commerce out there in the beginning so that's the canary in the coal mine if they take that away from us as they've done in china and we all know that china doesn't care to have its citizens liberated and they, Russia, I believe, used it as a weapon, but prior to their in, uh, invasion of the Ukraine, they got rid of cryptocurrency, and then all of a sudden they brought it back again. So they used it as, as a method of warfare. But if we get our cryptocurrency taken away from us, regulated away from us, then we're going to see a, more of a negative disclosure. So that's kind of the, kind of got my eye on these things. Uh, but the truth is, I'm in the audience the same as all you guys. Thank you, Tony. Hello. For giving us a, a view of your life. And what comes to my mind is I do not 
consent. And I think all of you now say this. And we all said at some point, I consent. And that got us where we were and we broke free from it where we are today. If we are going to unify this knowledge and this is a muddy, muddy, muddy world and it's a muddy, muddy galaxy, this CC Corp is a corporation that is a galactic corporation. And you point out that DNA, our genes are trade. They're more valuable than our gold and our minerals in the galaxy. When we get this government problem taken care of in our world, we still have vulnerable freedom of choice, free will. So we need to be presenting a program to the children about do not consent because when you do, you have to know truth and consequences. All right? So if we can come together in a couple years probably and, and we've all had our stories told and published, uh, <laughs> that we can find a way to hit the vulnerable kids. Now, right now, I mean, Board of Education, man, that's closed. You're not going to get into the school systems, right? Most orphanages, what, are state-run? You probably won't get into there either. So we've got to wait for the change in the infrastructure, which is going to happen. But when it happens, you still got the vulnerability situation from the galactic. Now, I don't know that they take us by choice by force, but and I've heard that when you tell them I don't consent, when the little grays come down to take you up and you say, I don't consent, how many of them obeyed that command? So th this is an important point, and uh, I only did one or two really interviews long ago where I explained that, like they did ask my consent. They had to ask, they had to. They had to ask me for consent. And they. And at first I said, no, I can't be away from my family. And they uh, said, no, you're gonna be right back immediately. And I said, they, will you help us out? And I said, yeah, sure. That was And consent. then the process. Boom. Yeah. So I just wanna say that um, they find that most beings in these programs that don't consent will become suicidal later. So they just put them back. And that's kind of a big deal. I get asked that all the time. Like, I think I was in the program, and I think my child is at risk for being tucked. What do I do? How do I, how do I teach my child to not do this? And I said, tell your, tell your child to not consent with everything. It's, it's maybe small, it may be big, but it's all we got right now. And consent is a big deal. The people that were in, again, that's kind of what happened in the second book. There was a loss of consent, and there was a great deal of people in that program that suicided, and so they canceled it. Um, consent's a big deal. And getting into the issue of all the schools and how everything, once disclosure happens, the, uh, the mechanism of schooling, our, our, everything is going to 
change follows suit because we right now we don't have anybody we don't have any example so once there's a disclosure and we see how other worlds are doing this we're going to get examples of much better ways to teach and much better ways to learn than what we have right now uh, they didn't put us really in front of a blackboard ever when i learned anything new in the space programs they put us in a system in a machine that taught us much more efficiently uh is there anybody else with a question <laughs> Anybody? Hi, Tony. <laughs> Hi. I'm just asking something for a friend. I uh, yeah. heard it in the back. <laughs> <laughs> when can we expect the release of your second book? <laughs> Honestly, I'm, I'm hoping to get it done inside a year. I'm, I'm hoping to get it done inside the year, really. Um, uh, the this book this book will come out soon I'm going to get home, I, I only have to plug a few things in and the notebook will be available that'll get published, this is a notebook, it'll be 10 books and it's arranged so that you can make your own timeline pretty easily so that's going to come out like in a week or two Jackie it's my second book Scott, hi what's up, what's up uh, Tony, years ago you did an interview with this Amish lady who had broke off from her, from the Amish community. Yeah. And uh, you guys were comparing the similarities between the Amish and the Sirius colony, the Deutschen Sirius colony. And uh, I was wondering if you ever expanded, expanded upon that through all your studies because I found it quite interesting that the Amish everybody knows how they are broken off from pretty much all of our civilization. You know what I mean? And here they are. We have the serious colonization broken off from our civilization. So are they them? You know what I mean? On earth. So, wow, that's, uh, you know, I don't want to call it tough, but that was kind of a tough question, Scott. Um, the Amish are not the serious colony Deutsch. So, but the same exact war that created, that they said they did it on horses, that the Ceres colony is very proud of winning the 30-year war in the 1600s. And obviously, for the reasons of my testimony only, I would invite everybody to go have a look at that because that's obviously a much bigger point in history than we're taught. Um, but that, because of that, so prior to that, you could only, in Europe, you could only be Catholic, period. Or you were put, that was like the Spanish Inquisition, that was all that. And then they had the 30-year war and then it became the Protestants and the Amish spawned out of that and the right to choose religion. But basically, they only became Protestants. And that, that was kind of let go of the stranglehold that the Catholic Church had on all of Europe. The Amish religion was started just a few years after the conclusion of the 30-year war. And I, I could be getting a few of these facts wrong. So that's why I would say go, go and, and check it out for yourself because I'm really not an encyclopedia of this stuff. But I've, I have looked into it, and I forget her name. Uh, she's got a book out in Amish in Manhattan. And uh, her and I talked about it quite a bit, quite at length, because there was a lot of similarities. Um, and she had a bad taste in her mouth about being Amish when she was younger. She wanted to be more independent woman, and she wanted more right to go to school and things. So the Amish were kind of all bad for her. And uh, in my experience, you know, it's, it's a culture, so it has its good and bad. So I don't, I'm not so damning of them as she was. 
though it, it deserves to be heard, her testimony deserves to be heard and considered in the, in the conversation. But I will say that that point in history spawned both cultures, and one of the cultures is living in space. And I don't, I don't think they have a connection today. Well, I mean, when you look at it top down, when you look at the Earth top down, from the point of genetic manipulation, like having, being, a, being a, a smorgasbord or a buffet of genetic material. So you want to come through and you need labor to go to your planet somewhere else. You get in the galaxy from your galaxy at Jupiter is where, the, where the, one of the main entrances is from a natural wormhole. You get here and you need a few thousand people to go and mine whatever it is on a nearby world. You can stop at the Earth and negotiate with at Jupiter and pick up a genetic strain that's uh, most suited for that atmosphere that you need mined, be it African-American or African person or Asian person. You know, all, that's why all the genetics are here. A lot of worlds don't have the diverse genetics that we do. And you can, they'll give you the genetic material, you'll grow your workforce, and you can leave them there. We are the best robot. We are the most efficient robot. You used last year the amount of electricity that one of these light bulbs uses in 24 hours. So that's how energy efficient you are, and I'll bet you got a lot of shit done. So, and then uh, the other thing is if you, you, if you take a robot and you, that can do a task and leave it alone on a planet, you'll come back with the task finished. If you take genetic humans and leave them on a planet and do a task, you'll come back with a task finished and you'll come back with more humans. So we are very effective. We are the best robot. We are the most advanced workforce there is and we're available to them and that's what we really are our, and our consciousness is part of everything so we we are we are valuable on many different levels and they're using us for many different things so the real the real money is in consciousness and in genetics up there our spirituality and it's also greatly stunted for us down here hello hi back to the consent so initially when you were contacted and you said no, and then they talked to you and they said, oh, it's just going to be a little while, and, and then you said yes. And then later on when you were contacted again, you said no again, correct? Or did you just immediately say yes? It was all in the same night. It was oh, in the okay. same instance, yeah. Just wondering how you felt that you changed your mind. What was it that, were they very convincing? Was it your young, vulnerable age, do you think? Did it... And once that initial agreement, did that just preclude any future contact? Once you consented once, you're done, kind of thing. It was for that original deal. So that, you know, clear, obviously it was a long time ago for me. Um, but they asked, we need your help, and we want you to come and work with us for 20 years. And that was how you work with us, not for us. And I said, I can't be gone for 20 years. I'm out. You know, I, I was already thinking about my mother and my sister and my family. I can't be gone for 20 years. My parents will be old when I get back. I can't do that. And he said, no, no, no. You're going to go back tomorrow. We, there's time travel. We're going to take you, and you're going to get a longer life. You're lucky that you're very fortunate to do this. The people that go into this, that do this, are fortunate. This is, this is like you winning something. This is a prize for you. That's how he told me. And he said, you're going to go back, and you may get to tell your mom everything. And so we, you, we're just going to borrow your consciousness 
And he explained it like that, that I would go back the next day. And I thought that I was in a first contact situation. I honestly thought, I honestly thought sitting on the table with a reptile and two grays and a tall white gray around me, that the next day on the news I was going to see them on the news and that the whole world was going to be in a post-disclosure world and we were going to, and I was thrilled. I was absolutely thrilled to death. Once they conveyed to me I was not in danger, they said, which I was. Yeah. <laughs> but that trust, you had some sort of trust. They built trust with they... me and I was ecstatic. I was, I was <laughs> literally over the moon. Yeah. <laughs> ego? You think going thrilled. after our egos? Thrilled that ETs were real, so they were real. I was, I was blown away. I was so, I was, I, I, you know, yes, I knew you guys are real. I'm so happy. I can't believe you chose me. I, are you going to talk to our president? Are you going to talk to the president? This is a 10-year-old kid right. Right. In, a, a, in a laboratory with extraterrestrials. And he said, we're going to take you. I said, I can't be gone that long. He said, you won't be. You'll be back. And I said, okay, I'll help you out. I'd be happy to help you on behalf of the earth. Mm-hmm. Thank That's you. what I was thinking. Thank you. And I woke up in Inyo Kern. Abby. Tony. <laughs> um, quick question. So when they brought you back at 10, did you have a continued feeling of being watched or monitored for those years? Or just, or do you, do you feel like they just dropped you off like, all right, products dropped, we're gone? Like, I'm still being watched, I'm sure of it. Well, I, yeah, I know, but I'm just saying, um, did you have a feeling as a child, like, after 10, being monitored? They, they dropped me off. I went to school. I went to school that Friday and got lost. And my teacher had to call my mom and say that I had amnesia. She would get me checked out at the doctor. Mm-hmm. And my mom asked me, are you feeling okay, uh, you know, on that Saturday? And then it rained really hard, and I played in the mud puddle that's in the book. And uh, next week was normal. I kind of adapted, and I wasn't really right uh, in the head. But a couple weeks later, uh, we got a call. My mom got a call, and they said there, is a, there was a situation at the doctor. At our, we went to a family doctor in a small town. It was a, uh, like a private practice. And they said, we're going to call you guys in if you want. And you'll you'll get free stuff like it's it won't mark on your insurance your cope however it worked out I don't know, but basically they enticed my mom to take me to the doctor, and when I went there in the lobby were a bunch of kids from my class that don't go to that doctor I went to that doctor all the time, they were in my I said what are you doing here I mean Perry Perry was one of them I said Perry what are you doing here man, he said they called my mom and had me come in, and my doctor was an older guy won a trip to Texas or somewhere. Won a trip, and there was a guy there that my mom thought was dreamy. He was so beautiful, and he was a brain surgeon. He was, his degree was in brain surgery, and he was filling in for that day mysteriously. I remember it because it was so awkward and because long-term memory is kind of my thing. And I went in, and he didn't give me a he checked He checked me with the stethoscope for a minute, and then he sat down with a pad and paper, and he said, what have you been dreaming lately? What do you tell me about your dreams? And I was creeped, and I just froze. And nothing. I'm fine. My dreams are fine. And but that was the experience, and I I never forgot that. So they followed up. So if it was them or some other agency that was aware that I went, they did do a follow up on that. Some months after that, I woke up in the middle of the night running down the stairs, with the incredible urge to run, 
And you know, this is like I was in the the onesie pajama. In the middle of the night, I was all but running down the stairs, and I ran outside the front door of my house, out into the uh, driveway, and there was a van, and there were men inside the back of the van, and I I was compelled to run right in the back of the van. I had no idea what I was doing. It's like I woke up sleep running, and there was a guy in there with a box and two other guys, and they grabbed me, and they said, sleep, and I went to sleep, and that's all I remember. So it was a follow-up. So I was followed up by the, a fake doctor, and I was followed up by a fake military, like another abduction experience, mm -hmm. and then that was it. And I, I've had the, you know, a lot of people that have been taken have the same kind of thing, the sleep paralysis and the random fears, like a couple weeks in, you know, I think I was 19, I had it really bad. Uh, a couple weeks of really bad fear, like I couldn't sleep. I was afraid to go to sleep and locked all the doors and I had it again. Well, uh, I had the same feelings again when my daughter was 12 and had a big personality change. So yeah, they follow you up. It's never a one and done. Once you're in the program, you're always in the program. Once you're in their database, you're always in their database. My kids will be in their database. Their kids will be in their database. And that's one of the other questions that I fish out in the timeline. What's mom, dad do? Grandpa, uncle, somebody, neighbor? They're all, there's always Navy or Army somewhere nearby. Thank you. Thanks. Is the time getting there? You look like the yeah. Fed, man. <laughs> hey, hold on a second there. You know what, uh, Tony, I was going to ask you, just, just to be frank with you. What's you know, that? Just to be frank with you. What would you do to recommend for someone who wants to say something, you know, not for me, a neighbor, a friend, you know, but they want to come out and come out and tell some stuff, man, but, you know, everyone else, oh, you're freaking crazy, you're crazy, you're crazy, you're crazy, oh, you know, I'm tired of reading hearing that, man. So, so do you, you mean know? come out and speak about it publicly, like do interviews or just I'm talk just to people about, about it? It's like, uh, you know, for my neighbor. You know, my neighbor, he, he's all, you know, it's kind of weird. But anyways, um, he, they don't, you know, everyone says that, you know, it's freaking, they're crazy, dude. You know, you know, it's like, what do you, what do you do, man? What do you, oh, well, what's the best way to That's a good of, question. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, what's the, what's the easiest way to, uh, you know, to, I, uh, come on, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> You know, I, don't know, I don't know how to ask this question. No, I get it. I kind of get what you're saying. Okay. Let me yeah. let me just try to field that and say that if you you're it's like you know somebody that suspects that they're involved. I think they are. Yeah. And how do they speak to somebody about it? Like, I would tell them to not bother with people that don't believe in them. Well, if they're going to talk everyone. to somebody, it's like everyone, man. I'll that's is it is everyone. Know. But you know what? Every most of the people in here. I mean, how many people in here are my Facebook friends? <laughs> So they start there. So you can start right there. So those are the people you talk to, not the people that don't believe you. You would start on there. There are, there are groups. There's a lot of organization online right now. The Secret Space Program Conference.com has email. There's a lot of places you can reach out to. You want to talk to other people that are saying the same thing. Birds, you want to find birds of a feather and go there. So that's what I would recommend. I would not waste my time on somebody that's going to shoot you down or come back negatively because... When you start getting memories back, you don't, A, you don't remember it all. I don't remember it all, frankly. I mean, to put it point blank, I remember a great deal. I don't remember all of it. To speak about it and have somebody shoot you down shuts off that faucet, that ability yeah, yeah. 
it shuts off that ability to get more memories, to be in, in a crowd of skeptics. So you need to be around a crowd of people that are going to listen or at very least just not shoot you down. And you need to find those people and then move on and then go from there and talk about it incrementally and make it okay. Because the other thing that I, we haven't covered here is that they put blocks in you. Jason Rice called them parting gifts. They put blocks in you to where when you do begin to speak about it, you get sleepy, you get distracted, something happens in your mind subconscious. You can't write it down. That's why, write, that's why there's a shortage of books out about it because a lot of people have vivid memories they have a plenty of books worth and they start to write it down and they fall asleep first thing in the morning and so you need to build that muscle up to get over those blocks and you do that by talking to somebody that can take them the information can handle it and process it and do it repeatedly and once you it, it's, it's just a muscle that they atrophied that you build up so you need somebody you need to I mean, you can talk about this with anything. Take any subject. We can talk football. It doesn't do me any good to talk football to somebody that doesn't know how to play football. So it's the same thing. Like, I, I, to find, find people that play football. Hey, Tony, how you doing? One more. David. Hey, I just wanted to give you a standing ovation, if we could. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Um, what a great crowd.